0: I want to begin this morning by telling you a parable I recently heard from Chuck Swindoll regarding erosion in the church. He says, On a dangerous seacoast, notorious for shipwrecks, there was a crude little life-saving station. Actually, the station was a small hut with just one boat. But the few members were absolutely devoted to keeping a constant watch over the turbulent sea. With little thought to themselves, they would go out day and night, tirelessly searching for those in danger. And many lives were saved by this brave, small band of people. So over time, it became a pretty popular place, to such an extent that some of the saved, as well as others, were willing to give of their time, their energy, and their money to support its objectives. So new boats were purchased, new crews were trained, and more lives were saved, The once obscure little station began to grow. But some of its members were unhappy that the hut was so poorly furnished, unequipped, and unattractive. So a new hut was built, furniture was purchased, and equipment was installed. By its completion, the life saving station had become a beautiful gathering place. But its objectives began to shift. It was now more like a clubhouse, and saving lives, rescuing the lost, encouraging the troubled, and helping the weak rarely occurred. In fact, fewer members were interested in braving the sea on life saving missions. About that time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the boat crews brought in loads of cold, wet, sick, half drowned people. They were dirty, they were hurting, they were lost, and they were lonely. And the beautiful new club suddenly became cluttered with messy people. So at the next meeting, there were strong words and angry feelings which resulted in division among the members. Many wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities altogether. Others insisted on saving lives. They argued it was their primary objective, that their only reason for existence was to minister to those in need. But unfortunately... They were voted down and were told that if they wanted to continue saving lives, they could start a new life-saving station down the coast, which they did. However, in years to come, that new station experienced the same old changes. It, too, evolved into another club. Yet another life-saving station began. So history repeated itself. And if you visit the coast today, you'll find a number of exclusive, impressive, beautiful clubs along the shoreline owned and operated by slick professionals who have lost all involvement in the saving of lives. Shipwrecks still occur, but unfortunately, most people are not saved. Instead, they drown at sea, while so few even seem to care. Anymore. You need to know the message of Jude is a direct attack on this kind of erosion in the church. But it's the easiest thing in the world to happen, isn't it? Because new ideas creep in, new ideologies over time, until the whole direction of the church changes and we become a country club. A holy huddle, a place to gather together as exclusive folk using insider language, patting ourselves on the back and applauding all that we have done, even though we haven't done anything. The ministry of the church is God's saving ministry. He delivers people. From the dominion of sin and death to the glory of eternal life. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So he deserves all the glory. In fact, turn with me to the book of Jude. Page 1027, if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Outline's right there in your Bible message of Jude is all about, number one, contending for the faith, and number two, pers- persevering in the faith, knowing that God is the one who saves and God is the one who protects and God is the one who promises to take us all the way home to glory. So God deserves the glory. Look at how Jude ends, verse 24. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless... Before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forevermore. This morning, 12 reasons Jesus came to die. Reason number 10, to keep us from stumbling. So that's where we're going. But to get there, we need to start all the way back in verse 1. If you would, go ahead and follow along as I read verses 1 to 4. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, Obviously, the main point in Jude's deep desire for these dear believers is to contend, A, for the reality of the one true faith. But to get there, we need to answer some pretty important questions. Like, number one, who wrote Jude? And number two, who is the audience? Both are answered very quickly in the letter. Verse one says, Jude is servant of Jesus Christ, and notice, brother of James. Most likely, this is James, the brother of Jesus well-known leader of the church in Jerusalem, which means that Jude was also the half-brother of Jesus. Now, the reason this is so fascinating is that Jude doesn't tell us any of that, does he? No, he doesn't introduce himself as the half-brother of Jesus. Why not? Because that doesn't matter. What matters is what he says in verse 1, that he's a servant of Christ. And that's why he's writing, because he loves God, and he loves the people of God, so he desperately wants these dear believers to contend for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. Before we go there, number two, who's the audience? Well, the end of verse two gives us a glorious description. It says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and notice, kept for Jesus. Jesus. So they're called, God did a good work in their life, so when they heard the good news of the gospel, they responded. When the shepherd called, they they followed, they believed, they trusted in Christ and his finished work on the cross for their salvation. So the called of God are the beloved in God. Church, I pray we never get over this glorious truth, that we're loved by God. We're called by God. We're the beloved in God. We've been adopted into his family and are now and forevermore sons and daughters of the Most High King. So we're called by God and we're saved by God but we're also protected by God who promises to take us all the way home to glory. Why do I say that? Because he says we're kept for Jesus. Jude starts right where he plans on ending. Telling us that all of salvation is a glorious work of God, which is why God deserves the glory because he's the one who ultimately, reason number 10, keeps us from stumbling and presents us blameless in the presence of our great savior with great joy. How awesome is that? Number two, who's the audience? It's the church. It's brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who have been called are loved and will make it all the way home to glory. Number three, why was it written? Well, Jude makes that clear, doesn't he? Verse three, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Why? Well, because certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude wanted to encourage these dear believers in the wonderful truths of the gospel, but now he felt compelled in light of the present circumstances to warn them, to urge them, to inspire them, to contend, to engage to labor, wrestle, and fight, if necessary, for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Before we move on, I think it's essential that we clearly define the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Because that's the issue, isn't it? That certain people have crept in unnoticed who pervert the faith. They twist it. They turn it. They manipulate the good news of the gospel into sensuality. So ungodliness, licentiousness. And by doing so, they deny our master and our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the question. What exactly is the faith that they're perverting? Well, it has to include the core truths of the gospel, which starts with God. That he created us in his image. Male and female, he created us. So he's the creator, we're the creatures. He's God and we are not. Which means he has all the authority in the world to command us on how to live, which he does. That's what the Bible is all about. God's instructions on how we are to live for his glory. And the promise that if we do, we'll be blessed. But if we fail to do, we'll be cursed for all eternity. And unfortunately, that's where the bad news comes in, right? The reality that we're sinners in Adam and that we deserve God's judgment, which, by the way, is often left out of most sermons. Why is it left out of most sermons? Because nobody wants to hear the bad news. Do you understand? The good news of the gospel doesn't make any sense if you don't put it in contrast with the bad news of God's righteous anger against those who've disobeyed him. So the truth that God is creator, that we're his creation, and that we've sinned and rightly deserve God's wrath. But it also includes the truth about who Jesus is and what he's accomplished on the cross. So the person and the work of Christ The fact that Jesus is the unique God-man, that he's 100% God, that he's 100% man, so that he might be an adequate substitute for our sin, and the fact that salvation is only secured through faith alone, meaning it's not works. You can't earn your way to God. Do you understand this morning that every other religion in the world teaches a works-based righteousness, a works-based salvation. But the Bible teaches God so loved the world that he sent his only son so that whoever, universal offer of the gospel, whoever believes in him, believes, faith, not works, will not perish, but have eternal life. But the Bible also teaches that looks like something, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. So that's a radical difference, isn't it? That in Christ, you're a brand new creature. That you're born again by the Spirit, and you start living a brand new life, putting off your old, former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you start putting on the new life, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's radical change. You understand? That's where the tension is with these false teachers because their lives never changed. Verse four says, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. So they twist and turn and manipulate the good news of the gospel into licentiousness and wicked living, and by doing so they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now what does that mean exactly? It means they profess to know God with their lips, but they deny Him with their lives. And as a result, Titus 1.16 says they're detestable, disobedient, and totally unfit for heaven, just like we saw last week, Hebrews 12.14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Let me just pause. To ask this really hard but absolutely necessary question Is that you this morning? Do you profess to know God with your lips but deny Him with your life? Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you're saved by your good works, but I am saying that you're saved for good works. True faith in Christ always demonstrates itself in good works. So asking the question, do you really have a transformed life? Is there really enough fruit in your life to prove your root of faith is grounded, tapped into, and abiding in the Lord Jesus? True faith looks like something. New creatures in Christ look like something. And make this connection. Because you can't teach what you haven't learned, meaning you can't contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints if you either don't know what that faith is or haven't ever truly believed in Jesus. Let me appeal to you to not be afraid to ask yourself the hard question, is my profession of faith in Christ really backed up by a life that is truly lived for Christ? And if not, then plead with God to have mercy on your soul. There's no greater issue of greater importance in all the world than the salvation of your own soul. As we move forward, I want you to see the connection between point A and point B because Jude wanted to encourage these dear believers by writing about their common salvation But he changed his plan seemingly abruptly in order to appeal for them to contend, A, for the reality of the one true faith. But why did he do that? Because of B, the reality of false teachers. So as we transition to verses 5 to 16, Judah's going to tell us four crystal clear truths about these people. You see them listed right there In the outline, number one, their judgment is certain. Number two, their speech is blasphemous. Number three, their life is void of the Spirit. And number four, their behavior is ungodly. We're going to take them one at a time, walking right through the text. Just by way of a quick warning, there is a bunch of strange things going on here in the book of Jude that I'm not going to have a chance or have time to comment on. I'm happy to talk to you after but just trying to get the lay of the land, highlighting exactly who these false teachers are and what they're doing. Starting with number one, the fact that their judgment is certain. Follow along as I read verses five to seven. Jews says, verse five, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Number one, judgment is certain. I mean, that's the point of each example, starting with Jesus. Incredible, by the way, that Jude highlights Jesus here. Verse five, saving a people out of Egypt. Why is that incredible? Because he's talking about all the way back in the Old Testament, right? The book of Exodus. Jesus is the one who's saved. But it's salvation in the midst of judgment, right? Because the Egyptians go chasing after the people of God right into the Red Sea, and what happens to them? They die, they perish, they're judged. But the fallen angels are no different. Verse 6 says they're kept in eternal chains until the final judgment. Just as, verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah who are highlighted here because of the sin of homosexuality, right? I mean, that's what it means that they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. Now, be clear. I understand this is a touchy subject in our culture. Homosexuality is no different than any other sin, including fornication, which is heterosexual activity outside the context of marriage. But all sin Whether it's homosexuality, fornication, pride, or stealing, or disobeying your parents, or greed, or envy, they're all deserving of judgment. That's the point, verses 5 to 7. For those who deny Christ, number one, judgment is certain. Why is that? Well, because number two, their speech is blasphemous, meaning it's ultimately against God. Jude says, verse 8... Yet in like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and notice they blaspheme the glorious ones. So not just speaking evil against God, but blaspheming blaspheming the entire heavenly host, which is crazy. Who does that? Who blasphemes the entire heavenly host? Well, apparently, these people. Verse 9, notice the contrast. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, what is that all about? I have no idea. What I do know is he's contending for the faith. Why do I say that he's contending with the... He's contending with the devil. Context. He's contending for the faith. Let me explain, right? The number one good guy, Michael, is contending against the number one bad guy, the devil. He's contending for the faith. But even in doing so, verse 9, he does not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but says, the Lord rebuke you. See, Michael leaves all of that in God's hands. So surely the God of all the earth will do what is right, especially when it comes to judgment. So Michael is clear. Judgment is the Lord's. That's his prerogative. But these people, verse 10, blaspheme all that they do not understand. And what's the consequence? They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. What do they understand instinctively? Sin. Sin specifically the sin of blasphemous speech against an infinitely holy God, which is why their judgment is certain. They absolutely 100% deserve God's wrath, not only because, number two, their speech is blasphemous, but also because, number three, their life is void of the Spirit. Jude says, verse 11, Woe! to them for they walked in the way of Cain and they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion so again Jude's highlighting that judgment is certain but for what he tells us verse 12 these meaning these people right same group of people all the time these are hidden reefs at your love feasts and they feast with you without fear So they're hiding under the service in and amongst the people of God. But they have no fear of God before their eyes. He says they're shepherds feeding themselves. They're selfish. They don't give a rip about the people of God. Jude says they're waterless clouds swept along by winds. They're fruitless Trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. Verse 13, they're wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Do you hear how all those analogies highlight emptiness? Waterless clouds have no rain. Autumn trees have no fruit. Wandering stars provide no light. Their lives are void of the spirit. Why do I say it like that? Well look at what, Paul, what Joan, <laughs> look at what Jude says about them, verse 19. He says, "It is these who cause divisions, for they are worldly people who are devoid of the spirit." So clearly, they're not new creatures in Christ. They're not born of the Spirit, which is why they're not walking in newness of life. And so they're deserving of God's judgment, which is certain, verse 13, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Brings us to number four. Their behavior is ungodly. Jude says, verse 14, it was, about, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all. Again, the certainty of judgment. But notice here as I continue to read how many times he highlights their ungodliness. Jude says, and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness but they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against themselves. Four times, one verse. Do you think that Jude has a point? He's got a point. Their behavior is ungodly. But what exactly does that ungodliness look like? Here it is, verse 16. These are grumblers, malcontents, Following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. What's the summary of these false teachers? Really, these false believers, why do I say it like that? Because they're in and around the people of God, hidden reefs at their love feasts and yet feast without fear. So they profess to know God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. So by their deeds, their words that they speak, the actions that they do, the attitudes that they have, they radically deny the God that they profess to know. Let me pause to ask this question, because Jude is saying hard things, don't you think? how should we respond to verses 5 to 16? How should they impact us as we wrestle through them? Well, for starters, I don't think there's any place here for arrogance. I mean, I don't think there should be a single one of us sitting here thinking, boy, oh, boy. I'm just super thankful that I'm not like these guys. I'm just saying that would be an easy place for us to go. What a bunch of wicked sinners those people are. I'm so grateful I'm not like that. Why shouldn't we go there? Because apart from the grace of God, so go I. Remember, 12 reasons Jesus came to die to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So we should humbly recognize this could easily be one of us apart from the grace of God, which again is why Jude is writing He's got two things that he's trying to accomplish in this little letter. Number 1, he wants us to contend for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. But he also wants us to persevere in that faith. And how exactly do we do that? Well, I think Philippians 2:12 says it best. That we're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's true. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling at the same time as knowing that God is at work within us to will and to work for his good pleasure. So number one, we need to work out our salvation, and number two, we need to glory in our Savior, knowing that he's the one who ultimately keeps us from stumbling. Now, As we transition, I want to highlight again the repeated language Jude's been using. Because Jude calls these false teachers, he starts verse 4, he calls them certain people. Then over and over and over again from verses 5 to 16, he keeps saying, referring to those same people, he says, these people, these people. Verse 8, look with me. These people rely on dreams, defile the flesh and reject authority. Verse 10. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand. Verse 12, these people, these people are hidden reefs, waterless clouds, fruitless trees. Verse 16, these people are grumblers, malcontents, loudmouth boasters. Now look at verse 17. But you, but you must remember, beloved, First comment, Jude is obviously transitioning here. Was just talking about false teachers. Now he's speaking to the saints. How do we describe the saints? Look again at verse 1. To those who are called the beloved in God who are kept for Jesus. There's a clear shift in the text from contending for the faith to persevering in the faith. And to do so, to persevere in the faith, he's going to give us four very clear commands on what it looks like to A, work out our salvation. Again, they're right here in your outline. Number one, remember the word of God. Number two, keep yourself in the love of God. Number three, have mercy on doubters. And number four, do your very best to save the lost from judgment. So listen as I read verses 17 to 23. See if you can pick up those commands. I'll try to highlight them for you as I read through it. Look what Jude says, verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's command number one. Remember the word of God. Verse 18, they said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, here's command number 2, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Command number 3, verse 22, and have mercy on those who doubt. Last but not least, command number four, verse 23. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Do others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So command number one, remember the Word of God. Specific context here is the apostles' constant predictions, constant warnings that false teachers will come in, wolves in sheep's clothing, who deny the Lord Jesus Christ, scoffing, rejecting, manipulating the Bible, seen most clearly in their ungodly lives. So the charge, the command, is to remember the Word of God. To know that in a world that seems totally confused, where up is down, down is up, and girls are boys, and boys are girls, And there's gender dysphoria, gender identity, and the need for gender pronouns. Hi, my name is Steve Thiel. I prefer the pronouns he, his, and him. How about you? In a culture like ours, we must stand on the Word of God and know beyond the shadow of a doubt that the Bible is true that it is the source of all that is good and right and true in our lives. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God and the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So let me ask you, is the Bible your source of all that is good and right and true? Does it guide your thinking? Is it your final authority? Or is it one of many authorities in your life? You know, there's a wonderful. Word that I think all of us should know. That word is epistemology. Epistemology. You can write it down. Epistemology. Ology means the study. What does epistos mean? It's what you believe, it's the study. Why do I believe what I believe? What is your epistemology? Is it the world or is it the word of God? In a world that is filled with all sorts of theories and ideologies, we have to know that we believe what we believe because the Bible is our source of all that is good and right and true, which means we need to remember the Word of God. How do we do that? How do you remember anything? By reading, by studying, by memorizing. By testing yourself day in and day out to make sure you know what it says. What is John chapter 1 about? Test yourself. What is it about? Did you read it? Did you read it yesterday? Oh, yeah, my Bible reading plan has got me in the book of John. Oh, how far are you? John 4. What happened in John 1? No idea. How does that happen? Test yourself. Read the Bible, study the Bible memorize the bible know the bible so that it's so ingrained in your mind that you cannot forget it even if you tried did you know that elizabeth elliot missionary to the anka indians author christian speaker that she died at the age of 88 But she died after suffering from dementia for 10 years. 78 to 88. She's got dementia. You understand what dementia is, right? You you lose your thinking. You're unclear about kind of everything. And if you go through that for 10 years, where do you end up? You end up not knowing anything. Yet she's interviewed. At the end of her life, in a time when she can hardly even engage the conversation, doesn't even really know what's going on. And yet, she quotes Scripture. What's left in my mind? Oh, I pray that it would be the Word of God rather than my own thinking because the Word of God is true. I pray that we would be those who are faithful to work out our salvation with fear and trembling every single day by the normal means of grace of reading our Bibles. That we would remember the Word of God. Number two by keeping ourselves in the love of God. Now, how exactly do we do that? Well, Jude tells us in verses 20 to 21. And you pick it up with all of the ing words. Those are called participles. So there's a command with three participles. I'll walk you through it. Verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, number one, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, And number two, by praying in the Holy Spirit, here's the command, keep yourselves in the love of God. How? Number three, by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So he gives us three things to keep ourselves in the love of God, right? Building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the three things that we should do. What do all those things have in common? Well, they're all related to your time alone with the Lord. So you're personally, individually, on your own, by yourself, cultivating your relationship with God. That's what I mean every Sunday when I say we exist to know Christ and to make Christ known. So first and foremost, you need to have an individual relationship with Christ. You need to know Christ. You need to love Him. You need to delight in Him. You need to deeply desire to spend time with Him. You need to cultivate a personal relationship with Him. I can't do that for you. I can't come into your house every morning and sit right next to you and say, hey, let's read together. Let's go through this. Hey, let's memorize some stuff. How's it going? What do you think about that? Let me test you. Are you listening? Right? I, I can't do that for you. And you can't do that for me. And yet we can walk alongside each other in this process, can't we? I mean, do you understand that's why we're starting these Sunday seminars in October? one of those seminars specifically on the topic, how to grow. What do you think we're gonna talk about in those seminars? We're gonna talk about worship, Bible reading, prayer, fasting, confession, serving, stewardship, the fruit of the Spirit, and perseverance. What are all those topics designed to help you do? They're designed to help you cultivate a relationship with Christ. I would suggest they're designed to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. What does it mean to keep yourself in the love of God? It means keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus and remembering the race is not eternal, but the reward is. Because the reward is Jesus Himself. Which brings us to number three have mercy on doubters. And number four, save the lost from judgment. So there's a, a shift here from having an inward orientation to having an outward orientation. Right, the, the first two are about us. Now he starts shifting outward. When Jude says in verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt, he's talking about ministering the gospel to those outside of yourself, but who are inside the church. So those who are actually struggling, those who may even be tempted to believe what these false teachers are peddling. Boy, oh boy, what a helpful that is, because he's commanding us to be gracious and kind and merciful with one another and not demanding. Now, I I don't know about you, this might be just a time for personal confession, but empathy is not my strong suit, right? I, I am more of a truth guy than a grace guy. Maybe, maybe you maybe don't struggle with this, right? You take a little break here if this isn't you. But I'm, I'm a truth guy more than a grace guy. It's probably why I get so fired up in sermons and I yell because I'm a truth guy and I have to downshift and work at being a grace guy. Jude's commanding us to have mercy, to be gentle, to be gracious, To be kind. And to be understanding with those who doubt. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 is so helpful to me. It says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and then this last phrase, be patient with them all. That's spoken, 1 Thessalonians 5, that's spoken to every member in the church, so not just pastors, but everyone, everyone. Be patient with them all. Have mercy on those who doubt. Beloved, let me ask you, is that a growth area for you this morning? To be a person who is patient with them all who is merciful with them all? Or are you prone to be patient with yourself? Giving yourself all sorts of room in the world in all sorts of different areas. You're patient with yourself when you struggle. You're patient with yourself when you sin. You're patient with yourself when you take two steps forward and then three steps backward. You're patient all the time with you. Unbelievably patient to yourself! and then turn around and condemn everyone else who stumbles. Oh, I pray that we would be a church absolutely known for truth. The Word of God is truth. We preach truth. But it's also known for mercy and grace that we would be patient with them all. Number four, save the lost from judgment. This command brings us right back to where we started this morning with my introduction. We absolutely want to be a church that is a life-saving station and not some sort of clubhouse to hang out in. That's what God has called us to be, a life-saving station. May we be absolutely devoted to keeping a constant watch over the turbulent sea with little thought to ourselves, going out day and night and night and day tirelessly, searching for those in danger, knowing that there's nothing new under the sun. Shipwrecks still occur so that many lives might be saved through this small band of believers. And may we have clarity may we have courage, may we have conviction in the midst of false teachers to contend for the faith once for all, delivered to the saints, and to persevere in that process without losing our way. Here's the million-dollar question. How do we do that? How do we do that as a local church how do we persevere in the faith without losing our way? I've read it, told you. I think Philippians 2.12 says it the best. That we're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But we work out our salvation knowing that God is at work within us to will and to work for his good pleasure. So number one, we need to work out our salvation. But the only way to successfully do that, to work out our salvation, contend for the faith, is by knowing that God is at work within us. So we work while we rest. We labor while we trust. We strive for all that we're worth while knowing that God is the one who ultimately keeps us from stumbling. Or just think about Hebrews 12, right? We, we run the race for all that we're worth, laying aside every wind and the sin that so clingly closely clings to us. And how do we do that? According to Hebrews 12, we heard it last week, so simple! By looking to Jesus, the author of, and the perfecter of our faith. And we do both because both are absolutely true. Number one, work out your salvation. How do we do that? Number two, by glorying in our Savior. See, that's why Jude ends where Jude does. Look with me again at verse 24. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. One of the greatest ways to protect us from becoming a country club or a holy huddle or just a place to gather as exclusive folk using insider language, patting one another on the back and applauding all the things that we have done is by remaining crystal clear that we haven't Ultimately, done anything. Why is that? Because the ministry of the church is ultimately God's saving ministry. Think with me. Yeah, we're called to water and sow, but God is the one who causes the growth. Yes, we're called to work, but God is the one who keeps us from stumbling. That's exactly what Jude wants us to remember. That's why he says, now to him. Who's the him? Little pedantic here. Who's the him? Be crystal clear. Who is the him? It's not you. You also need to be clear. It's not me. And it is not the person who's sitting next to you. They are not your Savior, but to him, to the only wise God right? Him, he deserves all the glory. It's not you, it's not me, it's not any one of us. It's God to him, to God who keeps you from stumbling. God is the one who keeps you from stumbling, and God is the one who presents you. Hear this glorious truth again. He presents you, look at the word, blameless before his presence with great joy. If that doesn't absolutely blow you away, then you probably haven't experienced it. Let me just be clear in saying that faith alone is in Christ alone. That is the only way for us to be blameless before a holy God. There's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. Your work will always fall short, which is why I'm appealing for you to glory in your Savior. In fact, glorying in your Savior and his finished work on the cross is actually the only way for you to work out your salvation because you have to have salvation in order to work it out. It starts. Do you understand what I'm saying? By glorying in your Savior. That's how it starts. What is Jude ultimately saying to us? He's saying, look to Jesus. It's really that Simple. Look to Jesus. Recognize this morning that you bring nothing to the table but your sin. You know, Jonathan Edwards once said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's what you bring to the table. You bring sin. Your sin is an inescapable reality. But don't you see that's what makes you a perfect candidate for the need for a savior? And here he is, Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can make you blameless. He is the only one who can cause you to stand in God's presence with great joy. I appeal to you, if you have not already, look to Jesus and be saved. And to you, dear believer, I say never stop looking. Never stop looking at what Christ's substitutionary death on the cross accomplished. Because in his dying, he keeps those whom he loves. So he promises to preserve his people. By his blood, he not only conquers sin and death and the devil, but by his blood, he'll keep you. He'll make you blameless. He'll cause you to stand in his presence with fullness of joy. By his blood, he promises to save you to the uttermost. Isn't that an encouragement to your soul this morning? That God guarantees you a place at the table. Even though you know that you don't deserve that place at the table. You understand what I'm saying? He preserves a place at the table. John 14, such a delightful verse. You know the context of John 14? He's talking to the disciples. And the disciples are confused. Because Jesus says, I go away, but I'm going away so that I might prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. What's he saying? He's saying, I've got a table and I'm going to set a place for you. There's a chair with your name on it. There's there's a tablecloth and there's a place setting. There's a plate, there's fork and knife and spoon. It's right there. It's yours. You know what's there? There's a little one of those teepee things. Your name is on it. It's reserved. Nobody else can take it. It's your place at the table. What does he say in John 14? How do I know the way? How do I get to that place at the table? How do I know? What does he say? He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He's saying something no different than what Jude is saying. Jude is saying, look to Jesus. Never stop looking to Jesus. And never, ever stop giving God all the glory for the great things that he has done, that he is doing, and that he promises to do in your life. Look at what Jude says, verse 25. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, when? Before all time, now, forevermore. Twelve reasons Jesus came to die. Number 10, to keep you from stumbling and to make you blameless, that you might stand in his presence with great joy, which is why he deserves all the glory now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, I pray for every mind and every heart here this morning that they would remember one thing. Our desperate need is to look to Jesus. Father, we look to Jesus for our salvation. We look to Jesus for our sanctification. Father, we look to Jesus for our example. Father, we look to Jesus, what it looks like to live for your glory. We look to Jesus as our Savior, as our Lord, as our Master. Help us to look to Jesus. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We're asking by the work of your spirit that our eyes would be fixed on him. For our good and for your eternal glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Mm